this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible. This episode, Milton's guest is Frank Gogol. Frank is the writer of several comic book series, including No Heroine and Dead End Kids. Frank is here to discuss his upcoming sequel, Dead End Kids, The Suburban Job. Frank, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Dude, thank, thanks for having me. This is, uh, it's not often anymore that I get to do a, a first time on a podcast. I'm usually on my, my second or third or fourth time, even on some shows at this point. And it's, it's always nice to, to get in front of a fresh set of ears and, and get to answer the old questions again. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, we're here today uh, to talk about a number of things, but mainly we're here to talk about Dead End Kids, and we're going to talk about something exciting, which is a sequel series to Dead End Kids. But let's back up before we talk about the sequel series. Let's talk about the first uh, series. Uh, tell us a little bit about the first Dead End Kid miniseries, and uh, what what was the inspiration for Dead End Kids? All right. So the the first volume of Dead End Kids, which now needs a subtitle because there's going to be a second series, but we haven't gotten there yet, um, is uh, it's the the story of three kids trying to solve their friend's murder in 1999. So think Stand By Me meets the Hardy Boys, but like a lot more dark and violent um, at times. Uh, but at its core, it really is it's a it's a book about these kids uh, dealing with these really sort of garbage home lives and, and the sort of traumas that come with, with childhood and, and having one another to lean on for, for those things and to, to take care of one another. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely in that space of, um, you know, the stand by me and, and, uh, the Sandlot, you know, group of kids, you know, kind of taking care of each other. Um, Stephen King's, it fits into that kind of category too, but kind of doing some things to turn it on its head and, and modernize it and, and kind of, create the uh sort of coming of age retro look back story for kids from the the 90s and early 2000s yeah and one of the things that succeeds really well in the first volume is the fact that um i'm old enough to remember the 90s and it doesn't feel as far back uh as uh stand by me was when it came back but i think if you did the math it's probably even more so um so um you managed to create a sense of nostalgia and authenticity for the 90s in very subtle ways i loved a, a lot of the details that were put in there um how do you go about making authenticity for period uh in a comic um how much of this was scripted how much of it were you know choices from your artist uh, you know it's i i gotta give most of the credit to my collaborators uh especially uh nanad svitikanen who did the interior art and the colors for the book um i'm a pretty lean scripter uh i generally try to keep you know my scripts very instructional without a lot of like jokes some writers like to kind of like add jokes and, and, and like little kind of bits in there and, and really like draw out the panel descriptions, but I'm more efficiency minded, I guess. Uh, not that it's better or worse, uh, but that's just how I like the script. Um, so like specific details and specific settings for a specific effect, uh, things like that, that, you know, those were, <clears throat> uh, my contributions, uh, like, like there's uh blink one, a two lyrics in in the lettering that was in the script uh but a lot of the posters that are in the background of the kids bedrooms were kind of things either nana and i talked about after i wrote the script or things he just 
kind of sprinkled in uh, for this authenticity. Um, and you know, like I said, it's uh, it would definitely be more credit to Nana. Uh, and and the reason that I was okay with that and I kind of went light on it is because Nanad's a, a bit older than me. Uh, so I'm going to be 33 this year. So I was 30, 31 when I was writing Dead, Dead and Kids. Um, and, and my memory isn't quite as long as, as Nanad's. I, I don't know how old he is, but I got to imagine he's in his, his mid to late 40s. So he's got about a decade on me. Um, so when he was going through and kind of picking out the examples and, and different things, um, it came. It became a back and forth at times, and kind of like a fact check thing, because uh, Nanad lives in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, so like his perception of '90s America is is very vibrant, but it's also a little filtered. So I had to kind of check a couple things, and then kind of uh, fact check a couple things, like posters, like you know, making sure that you know the Devils hockey poster in one of the kids' bedrooms was the right logo for the time period, stuff like that. Um, so it was it was like collaborative on the fly in a sense. Uh, but again, I gotta I gotta give most of that credit to Nanad, um, which, which is part of the reason I wanted to work with him. Yeah, the the details come through really well, and um, they set the tone of the time period, but they don't get in your in your way. And one one of the strengths of uh, the first volume of Dead and Kids is the economy of storytelling generally. You say you like to script lean, but also there's an efficiency in the way in which we are introduced to a wide range of characters in a very short period of time. You've got a three-issue arc uh, that manages to introduce a, a, a small cast um, and introduce a lot of conflict and complexity into their lives, a lot of uh, goals and dreams and uh, shortcomings. Um, how did you, how did you arrive at that as a skill as a writer? You know, I, that's, that's something that I really don't know the answer to very, very like eloquently. Um, I, th- I think part of it's, revising like i'm a pretty notorious reviser i'm also more of a planner than i am a writer in a lot of ways like i will live with a story and the characters and like sort of the long form breakdown for for months maybe years at this point with some of the stories and then when it comes time to to script that that process is a lot faster um it's you know i usually do like a script dump and like write everything in a week, like one draft for the whole series. Uh, you know, I think it took me eight days to write the first draft of Dead End Kids. Um, and then I'll go back and revise and revise and like, you know, give myself notes on what needs more clarity and, and you know, where things can be linked together a little bit better. Um, and it's in those those revisions and notes to myself and notes from, from peers and, and collaborators that kind of help me build out more robust things. Um, I'm also a very light scripter in that, like I try not to have too many word balloons on the page and, and, and have too many words in each balloon. And that kind of forces me to make sure that every word counts. Um, I, I put in a lot of checks and balances in my, my writing process to make sure that I'm not overwriting and that I'm always staying focused and that like, I'm always kind of, eyes forward on, on what I'm doing. One other thing that you do really well in, in addition to efficiency, um, I don't know if you read any indie comics by uh, either Jordan Alsaika or Rick Quinn, but both of those guys have a gift of creating a sort of emotional three-dimensionality to their characters very quickly and I find that I can, can connect with their characters in a very rapid way. And that is true of your writing, especially in Dead End Kids. You've got a, you've got a large cast and there was a, a distinct sort of recognition with each one of those people that, hey, I, I, I see something in them. I, I feel something for them. And you did it kind of in a lot of places without dialogue and without captions. Um, that, you know, hats off to you. I don't even know if, if I got a freaking question in there, <laughs> there for you other than well done, sir. How, how, how do you, how did you, uh, how did you bring that as one of your skills? You know, it's, um, with dead end kids, the first volume specifically, I kind of 
backed myself into a corner after just two pages. Um, so, you know, spoilers for anyone who hasn't read the, the book yet, but um, the second page of the book is, is a big splash of one of the kids from the story dead floating in, in a, a frozen pond. And then the narrative flashes back and tells towards that point for a while. Um, and, and I realized really quickly, like I've got this, this great splash page, but I also have a kid floating in the water that nobody knows anything about and doesn't, they don't give a shit about him. So I had to work really hard to sort of retroactively make people care about Ben and, and the other kids and like have his death be impactful to them. Um, and, and doing that really kind of helped refine and, and create some of the, the storytelling um, sort of uh, oh, what's, what's the word sensibilities that I, that I have and that I've brought to projects after that. Um, for me, uh, I've, I've got like some personal philosophies about like what makes a good story and like, they're not right or wrong. They're, they're mine. Um, but one of them is that people will come to a book for concept, you know, like this is my, ninjas versus aliens on a, on the roof of a train book like you know that's going to speak to somebody but if they read that first issue and it's all flash and no substance and they don't give a crap about the characters they're probably not coming back for issue two and and so on um so i always make it a really big point to to make my characters uh as as real as possible and, and as like not sympathetic but like able to be related to uh, as they can be. And I think that there are some sort of things that anyone can relate to. Like, yeah, Dead and Kids is about a book about, you know, friends dealing with the, the sudden and, and cruel death of their, their friend. But it's also about, you know, like in general, like I was saying, childhood trauma. And no one goes through childhood completely unscathed in one way or the other. Like, and at its core concept, these kids are a representation of anybody who picks up the book in some way, even if it's like at a distance, it's still recognizable. Like we all went through stuff when we were kids, when we didn't have the emotional tools and, and the, the bandwidth to, to understand and process what was happening. like, that's why so many adults are in therapy. And, you know, so it's, um, I think your question had to do with, with characters and I rambled for a while. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just, I really think that for me, the most important part of storytelling is it's twofold. It's p characters you care about or, or characters you can feel something towards, whether it's hatred or, or love or, or something other than ambivalence. Um, and then a really good arc. Um, and those are the two things I always build every story from like, I, what, what's the character, what are they going through? So let's shift gears slightly here and jump into volume two, Dead End Kids, The Suburban Job. Um, just to start out, give us give us the pitch for the new miniseries. All right. So, so The Suburban Job is almost an anti-Dead End Kids volume one um, in a lot of ways. And that was sort of by design and what I was interested in exploring. Uh, the pitch is... Dead and Kids, the suburban job is the story of three kids who have all been deeply impacted by the uh, sort of ripple effects of 9-11. The story is set seven years after the attacks and follows three characters, Tori, Brian, and Amna, as they kind of deal with the different long-lasting effects of the attacks. Uh, so Tori is the daughter of a first responder who died at Ground Zero seven years ago. Brian is the brother of a young woman who uh, died in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan uh, fighting in the war that resulted of from 9-11. And Amna is a Middle Eastern American, uh, Pakistani American uh, young woman who's kind of dealing with the sort of racial and, and, and ethnic backlash that, that came from 9-11 or was exacerbated by 9-11. Um, and each of them is kind of dealing with things relating to, like I said, those long lasting effects of, of the attacks. Um, but it's also a heist book. I like the fact that you describe it as anti-dead-end kids because one of the, the great things about this first issue of the second arc is how thoroughly it continually subverts your expectations. First of all, at the very macro level about what a sequel is going to be. And I actually, I saw... Early on in the creative process on this, you were you, you reached out to some people on social media asking 
hey, what what does make a good sequel? Mm-hmm. And I don't know when you did that, if you had already decided to do a sequel or not. Um, tell us a little bit about your decision to even do a sequel, because that that's fraught with uh, peril. Um, Dead End Kids was successful. Um, why tempt fate? Uh, why, go, yeah. why, why do this? <laughs> Um, so I can't remember exactly when it was, but it had to be sometime between dead end kids, number one and dead end kids, number two coming out, uh, late last summer, uh, July, August, uh, that source point press, uh, who published dead end kids, uh, reached out to me and said, Hey, this book is hitting really big. Uh, it's, it's possibly the biggest book we've ever done. And it ended up in fact being that, um, they said, if you wanted to do more, we would definitely publish it. Do you have another story? And my initial reaction was just, I don't, I don't even know. Like the book really popped off in a way that I didn't expect and, and the level of, of success and doors it opened and, and, and just everything that, that came of it was really unexpected. And it was a lot of kind of learning on the fly and, and, and sort of trial by fire. Um, but after I sat with it for a while, I started thinking about sort of two things. One was what would a story like this look like? Like what would the next iteration be? Um, And then the second question after that is, do I have that story? Um, And the answer to both after a while ended up being the next iteration looks nothing like the original. um, And the answer the did I have a story ended up being no. Uh, So, so for a little bit, I wasn't actually into the idea of doing it, right? Like you said, why tempt fate had a really successful book. Um, it scratched all the right itches. The world has changed a whole bunch, especially in the last few months. Um, like it's, it's a risk. Um, and you know, comics aren't cheap to make and they're time consuming and you, know, you sort of have to choose your projects. But then at some point I, I got this sort of inkling of an idea of like what it, what it could be. Um, and, and sort of like what, um, now let me back up. So for me, like a good sequel can either do, it, it does like one of three things. You get only a handful of options that are really viable and you can do more of the same, but bigger. So that's kind of like, you know, your, your Terminator two is, is kind of that, you know, but mm-hmm, subvert, mm-hmm. Like subvert, you know, the, the formula, uh, you can do more of the same, but bigger and like switch genres kind of like from alien to aliens going from horror to action film. Um, or you can, you know, just sort of say, screw it and do something completely different. Um, which, I honestly can't think of an example off the top of my head for that right now. Um, but uh, for me, what what, be, what became important was, again, story and characters um, and, and kind of this jumping off point of, of 9-11. Um, uh, what, what really kind of like made me start thinking hard about this was a conversation I had with my wife. Uh, my wife is three and a half years younger than me. She grew up in San Francisco. I grew up in sort of the bay area of new jersey like the complete opposite side of the u.s um in a town where you could look north across the bay and see lower manhattan and on a clear day you could see the twin towers um so like that our our experiences were just so diametrically not opposed but like different um and and us talking about it over the last few years um, just kind of like getting perspective on it and, and, and realizing how much it affected me and, and the people around me. And then like on the macro scale, like how much it affects like the world we live in today, like things like the Patriot Act and other legislation, uh, racial tensions, and just like there's a lot of ripple effect from it. And I you know, kind of started jotting down ideas about, all right, well, how, how would these go forward? How would, you know, what would this look like? Um, and then I then I made the decision to kind of like the thing that really locked everything in the place was finding the right formula for the book, like what the format would be. And I had watched season three of True Detective at some point last year, maybe maybe a little bit before that. And that stuck with me. I always liked the idea of anthology style stories that are kind of same feel, but different cast, different setting, uh, maybe different era. Um, and that that just seemed like the right back door. And like I at that point I kind of had all the elements that I, that I knew I wanted to work with. So then, uh, then I was sure I wanted to do it cause I felt like I had the right story. Um, and then from there on out, it's kind of like the same as any other book I work on. The process kind of has a shape at that point. Um, so it was, it was a tough decision. Like again, my 10th fate, you know, maybe it won't pop off the same way. This 
doing this means I don't get to do something else or I don't get to do something else for a while. Um, and at the end of the day, like it just, it was the thing that kept me up at night. It's the thing that kept scratching at the back of my head. So I, so I did it. I'm glad that you um, referenced anthology series in a way to sort of explain what dead in dead in kids volume two is like. Um, one of my personal hopes going into starting reading dead end kids uh, volume two. I don't know. Are you by any chance familiar with a show in the UK called skins? I am familiar with skins. I, I watched a little bit of in college. My girlfriend at the time was super into it. I, I couldn't tell you almost anything about it, but I do, I do know of it. So the one thing uh, that I think was brilliant about that show was they made the bold choice of every two seasons, just completely getting a new cast. Mm -hmm. um, and I was hoping that that's what dead end kids two was going to do because I, I felt that you had so thoroughly explored the cast in volume one that if we're going, if we're going to do something and call it dead end kids, you know, that it would be something like that. So I went in with that expectation or that hope, not that expectation. Um, and, and then I was even more, pleasantly surprised by the fact that what I wanted um, was kind of more of the same, um, but with a fresh batch of characters. But instead you have upped the ante on multiple levels, um, the stakes for the characters, but also the dynamics of the types of characters and the relationships are totally different. And even at one point in the story, you kind of have a little bit of a, a meta commentary on how this is not at all like volume one. And yeah. um, none of that feels like um, uh, a rejection. None of that feels like a, Hey, I'm, I'm getting a chance to do it right this time. None of that feels like being done for whatever effect. It just feels like this is the perfect choice to make in this context. We, we we get to we get a whole new cast of kids, but we also get um, a completely different type of story. Yeah, and that was that was kind of by design. Like one of the things I gave myself as like a north star writing this was like I wasn't writing Dead End Kids one point two. I was writing a new story, um, but also um, like the the character design kind of lent itself, and I think that's part of why the the scene you're talking about lands the way it does is like the 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 focus character for for volume one was murphy and murphy's got this this very dark uh angry view of the world but he also has a group of friends grounding him down for tori you've got a lot of the same thing as a as a protagonist but her worldview is shaped by isolation rather than than community mm -hmm. uh, so so the narration while it de definitely purposely has a, a meta tinge to it um feels like or natural and organic coming from her because you know it's it's yeah. in the voice of the character it makes sense um and and that was very very by design and and this book is like i said it's about three kids dealing with things but in silos like it's it's the opposite of dead end kids because they don't have that community they don't have each other to lean on and then the the story kicks off and they're thrust into a position where they're suddenly back in each other's lives for for some reason, um, and and sort sort of exploring the tension, but also kind of like the uh, the sort of nostalgia that they themselves have. Um, like in in issue two and especially issue three, we we get into a lot of like how this whole thing's affecting them and 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 how it's rubbing them in a familiar yet irritating way, but also in a way that like is a little bit welcome. It's, it's not a, it's a, it's a nuanced thing. It's not uncomplex and being a teenager and, and having like very big vibrant emotions that again, you don't really necessarily know how to keep in check really plays. Play, it's, it's fun, honestly, to, to write kids because they can kind of say and do whatever they want, not have to think about the consequences in, in a realistic way. Whereas yeah. like adults, yeah, have a little bit of forethought and they can tell themselves, no, it's this, this isn't the time. Um, but yeah, it's, I, if I had to pick one, honestly, I'd say 
volume two is the better of the two. Um, just, just from a practical standpoint, I'm a better storyteller and Nanad's a better artist. Sean is an amazing letterer, so he hasn't gotten any better, but he's always at the top of his game. Um, so the team is better. Um, I think the story is a little more prescient and it's also a little more focused. Uh, the, the, the first volume is a little bit general to me. Um, and which is fine. It worked for the book. People liked it. Um, but this one has a little bit more of a laser focus and I like that too. So in addition to just the risk of doing a sequel in general, um, <laughs> you, you, you took some sort of bold choices here by choosing to uh, make 9-11 and the aftermath such a central part of the story. Um Contrasted, you know, you mentioned Stand By Me as kind of a touchstone for volume one. We kind of feel like we, we you know, there's a certain immediacy and uh, connection that we all have with those sorts of stories. Whereas with 9-11, major historical world event, uh, the ramifications we're still living in, uh, it's fraught with, uh, you know, political aspects we we've got a polarized country um and just the sensitivity that you would need to bring to covering the topics in general um that that's a whole lot of uh you know storytelling burden that you chose to walk into tell me a little bit why uh, why you felt uh, you wanted to make uh bring that on explore that territory uh I mean, well, let me let me start by saying that like the, the choice was conscious. Like I said, I, it came to me. It's something that I've lived with for nineteen years. You know, as of this recording, like that was that was that long ago. Um, and and just realizing how much of the world is shaped by it, and and something I always look for when I do a story is, is some kind of universal thing that that can speak to everyone. Um, and and this was this was just the thing I couldn't get out of my head. Uh, that that all said, um, I did another one of the North stars I sort of set out for myself going into it was that this, this wasn't going to be like some kind of nine 11 overly sympathetic porn or anything like that. It wasn't going to like, you know, stand on top of, of this tragedy to, to tell this, this story. Um, mm-hmm. Truth, truth be told, like um, there's, there's a, a, a particularly, uh, strong page with with strong imagery relating to 9-11 in the first issue and then from there on out there's there's really very little direct reference to it um it's it's more about what these kids are going through that's what this series is it's it's kids who are going through some shit dealing with it and and also crime um but i think that in that one page um and and this especially the first five or six pages of the first issue you really get all the information you need to know about what this book is going to be about. Like, there's no need to, to dwell on that. Um, it's not like anyone would be unaware. Uh, but the other thing is, for me, like, th- there's a theory in comics. and I mean, it's not, it's not a theory. It's, it's true. But um, it's the human mind and, and reading and readers in general have the ability to connect things that, you know, when you look at one panel and you look at the next panel and you see that an object has, has moved from the left of a table to the right of the table in that white space in the gutter between those two images, your brain does a lot of mental gymnastics to tell you like what happened between those two panels, like a mini story. Um, and, and I think that readers are incredibly equipped to do stuff like that and that they don't need to have their hands held. Like one of my biggest qualms about reading big two comics, which I love and adore um, is that they do a lot more handholding than I'd like them to. Uh, There's a lot of refreshers. Characters always need to be named every time they show up, you know, recap pages, um, overly heavy continuity references, stuff like that. Editors notes. Um, Those things aren't my favorite. Uh, And I have a lot of faith in the reader to be able to put things together and all, and you understand. Um, So like, I don't, spend a lot of time overly explaining things and, and re-referencing things. And, and I do a lot of silent panels that kind of ask the reader to put it together. And I think that the, the page in question in issue one really establishes that this book is periphery and involved to some degree with, with 9-11 and that the characters are dealing with that stuff seven years later. And that's really like all you need to give the reader. It's not like they're going to forget that. Um, so there's no need to kind of 
dwell on on the imagery or the 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 actual attack um and and we can trust the readers to to carry that information forward as they see things and then give context to the images and and the words in the the future issues that that they, they would need to without having to remind them if that makes sense yeah 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 it does um I did want to talk a little bit about one of your other projects, um, but what you're talking about right now is a good segue to talk about just writing comics generally. Um, you've you've alluded to um, you've alluded to some of the things that are available to a comic creator that they can that an experience that they can create only in the comics medium. Um, can you give me a uh, another example or two of things that you're, you're proud of in your comics career where you have done that sort of thing where, you know what, I, I could, I could choose to tell stories in any medium, but I'm telling them in comics and this particular thing utilizes the comics medium in a way uh, that I'm proud of. Uh, I mean, for me, I, one of the things I love about comics is, is the ability to really play with time which uh, is not impossible to do in film and television and books. Uh, but the format is, it's not as easy. Like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it too well, but um, like with, with a movie, like you'd have to rewind a, a movie to watch it in reverse, right? Like it's, and it's, and there's not really a built-in function for, watching in reverse with audio in reverse and stuff like that but you can pick up a comic book and read it backwards right like and that you you, you can read the last page in order and then read the second to last page and, and go like that uh and that that like flexibility of the medium allows for some really cool time selling telling stuff like you can do a lot of recontextualization um i always think of uh i think it's the fifth issue of of watchmen um, and it's the, uh, spoilers for a, a 34, 35 year old book at this point. Um, but, uh, it's the issue where, uh, Rorschach gets unmasked. Uh, the issue is called fearful symmetry. Uh, the whole book is, um, nope, nope. Sorry. Fearful symmetry is the other one. It's the, it's the issue where Rorschach gets unmasked though. Uh, and, and in that issue, you, you get the story of Rorschach getting apprehended by the cops and, and having his mask taken off and you finally get his identity. Um, and that issue ends with an epithet from William Blake's The Tiger. Uh, for anyone unfamiliar with that, William Blake was a, a poet in uh, England in, I want to say, the 17th or 16th century, uh, maybe a little earlier than that, not clear on the dates, but he wrote a poem called The Tiger, and it's this really great poem about like this ferocious tiger that like God trembles in front of, uh, but it's done on a piece of artwork uh, that's called an illuminated poem, and the artwork portrays this really sad, skinny, sort of jaundicey tiger and it totally contrasts with the content of of the poem and when you read down the poem and you get to the bottom you see the artwork and like it kind of recontextualizes your experience of reading the poem on a second read so when you get that that epithet at the end of the issue of watchmen you can go back and read the issue of watchmen with sort of a new set of eyes right uh and and see different choices that more made with the dialogue and and that the the colorist whose name escapes me did with the colors um maybe, maybe gibbons did the colors as well um but also like the the color on rorschach's face and the way his eyes look when he gets unmasked um like it all ties back to that that poem and it gives you like a new sort of understanding and, and depth to the to the to the issue. Um, so it's like, I love that about comics that it can, it can be intermediary. You know, you can have, they're not intermediary, but mixed media and, and, and call attention to other media and, and, and create a, a new viewing and reading experience and, and that flexibility. And, you know, with time travel stories, you can do a lot of the same thing too. Like you can, you can start an issue where it ends and, you know, essentially loop it forever. Right. It's, there's, a lot of cool things. I can make up a million examples, but essentially comics for me as a medium is there because of the flexibility, but also because it's the, the medium I love most. I read comics every day. I have for the better part of the last 20 years. I have a huge collection. I, I just, I love everything about comics. I love the superheroes. I love the, the, the sort of uh, 
exciting and experimental storytelling that's getting done in comics, especially now, um, that's not really being done in mass and other mediums. It's just, it's just the right medium for me. So since you love comics so much, let me ask you to, to, uh, specify some things you don't like, uh, maybe, maybe some things that are difficult to do on the creative craft side, or if you want to push this at aspects of the business or challenges in managing projects, take it any way you want, but give me some things that you, you know, that you dislike about comics. Uh, not that I have an answer for it, but I'm not sure the industry is organized and set up the best way to support the medium. Uh, I've, I've definitely got some issues with with distribution and and how we we market comics and and how we can market comics given the sort of small window and and limited um, time and and you know, ability to market comics. That's something that I'm actively with each project trying to solve or solve towards a solution for. Um, and I, I've definitely made some progress there, but there's there's a lot of issues. Um, I I don't love how kind of impenetrable comics can be as a as a medium, uh, and that's it's no one's fault. But uh, you know, with with DC and Marvel being sort of the the flagship big beacon companies that people know about, um, and their sort of revenue models and their their IPs done the way they do, like you know, continuity is a bitch, right? Like it's it's yeah. really hard to just jump into a spider-man book um and that that kind of frustrates me because i feel like this could be a much bigger industry with a much larger audience if there weren't so many barriers to entry um you know this there, there's 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 a ton there that we can say and 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 people are making moves i mean dc's got a really great and and ever robustening uh teen and YA line, um, which are just excellent. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a 33 year old man and then I just read the Raven and Beast Boy, uh, YA books that came out a while ago and they're great. They're great. They're right up there in the, the Rain and Telgemeier space. And that's, that's exactly what we need. Marvel just, uh, signed like a big thing with uh, scholastic. So here's hoping that really kind of like, yeah, you, you remember book fairs, like let's, let's see some, yeah. <laughs> some Marvel books and, and book fairs and stuff. Um, so like, I, I could talk all day about things that frustrate me and, and I think there's nothing that's in particular like dire or, or going to destroy the, the industry. Uh, and there are definitely people working to solve those problems. I just wish that there were fewer things to worry about and, and that there were more solutions happening faster. But I think that th- I'm no different than most people in that. Yeah, we're, we're an audio podcast here, so you could not see that I was nodding along in agreement on pretty much every one of those points. Um, and I definitely feel you on the uh, impenetrability uh, aspect because I've, I've been fortunate enough to be invited on uh, a podcast a few times uh, with this uh, host who's uh, – he's actually like a philosophy professor uh, at a pretty big school – and he teaches aesthetics, um, and he loves uh, genre culture, and he he's focused more on TV and film at the moment. And was a big comics person when he was younger, and he he wants to um, maybe catch up with a little bit of what's happening now. And his stance is kind of rooted in a the old days were better sort of a perspective. And to a certain degree, I may uh, have certain sympathies with that argument, but I do think that there's a lot that's happening now um, that would be uh, enjoyable. However, I'm struggling to recommend things for him because <clears throat> every single thing has a caveat of like, Oh wait, no, you're not going to grasp yeah, this. You're read this, you read that. Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's kind of an impossible argument to make, and it almost makes that other person's argument win by default. So it's kind of it's kind of frustrating. Yeah, like it's it's weird. Like I, I keep saying that I'm, I'm 33, and and that's true, I am. Um, but uh, even even like I'm fairly young compared to like the guys who grew up reading like Silver Age comics, right? 
but even me, like now that I've been reading comics for, for about 20 years, like I, I have like a, a period in mind of, of like, what is my golden age of comics? Like I came in reading around uh, <clears throat> the time Joe Casada took over. So, you know, the, the, the Bendis Daredevil run and the Bendis Avengers sort of epic run that had, you know, House of M and, and Avengers disassembled all the way through Siege. Um Iron Man by Matt Fraction, uh, Captain America by Ed Brubaker, Thor by uh, Joe Straczynski. Um, like, I mean, like I look back and like these are sort of my touchstones. And and I can t- I still read comics. I still read almost every Marvel comic put out. I read a lot of what DC puts out. I read a lot of the indies. Um, but like, I guess I, there might be an element to it where you just kind of like cement a period where, where there's still like a like a shininess to comics. Yeah. Like when you first get into them and, and you're, you're just consuming as much as you can and, and you love it. And like, you just kind of cement yourself in that period. Um, <clears throat> though I, I don't know. I, I could be just making shit up. Do you have a particular big two dream book that, that you would love to do? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I can't, I couldn't name one, but I can name a few succinctly. Um, there, there are characters I'd like to tackle and collaborators who I'd like to work with. Uh, more so than like a run or an idea for a run necessarily. Um, but uh, first and foremost, I would a thousand percent love a shot at Iron Fist. Um, and, and for anyone listening, if you're not reading uh, Kirkman and Somni's Firepower, uh, go read it. It is about as close to an epic, long running uh, Iron Fist book as you'll probably ever get, ever get. And it's still, I think the third issue is only out now. So there's time to catch up. Okay. Um, that, that was my plug for Kirkman, who doesn't pay me. <laughs> but yeah, I would I would write uh, I would write Iron Fist if I could. Um, I feel like there's room to tell a really good sort of Mortal Kombat style tournament book story there. Um, Fraction and Brubaker got pretty close to doing something like that on their run, but like it it didn't it wasn't like the uh, the sort of central idea of it. And then uh, Brisson did something kind of like that with his run, but really cut that aspect of it off early on in the run and it became something else. So I think that that's still really fertile. Um, and, and I, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do, a, I would love to do a one shot on black Panther. Um, I, I, I'm a, I'm a straight white dude and there are some characters who I just wouldn't feel comfortable, you know, taking away opportunities from, from creators who could tell a story more authentically than me. Um, but if I could do a, a, the 22 to 48 page, black panther story just hop in spend a little time wakanda and and tell a cool story like i would be very grateful for that opportunity black panther is one of my favorite characters i love i love mantle characters like then you know the same thing goes for iron fist so like i would i would i would love to tell a story with both of them i feel like that that would be kind of cool and, and maybe something we haven't seen before um i'd love to tell a hawkeye story i love the idea of an average joe who just works his ass off to be running with super soldiers and gods and guys, you know, in, in insane technological armors um, and still holding his own. Um, and I feel like there's really room to elevate that character. Um, I'd want to do sort of like a black label type Hawkeye book, like maybe something set in the future where we see like Hawkeye inspiring, you know, everyday people to, to, to step up and, and, and do more and be more. Um, I think, I think that there's some, something cool to that idea. Hey, hey, um, and- we got to cut this part out of the podcast, man. That's a great pitch. Don't don't give that one away, man. <laughs> yeah, but uh, something that's something I thought about a lot. Um, and then the, the one other book that I idea that I have that I would really love to do is sort of like a Marvel version of the Justice League, but with like the the Marvel analog characters. Um, and I'm not talking like uh, Squadron Supreme because I really think they suck. Like they're just, they're just <laughs> I don't know why people keep trying to make them happen. They just they're just empty uh, sort of vessels that are obviously characters of characters at this point and and marvel has a cast of characters that fit the roles right you got namor for aquaman you've got quicksilver for for uh, flash you've got sentry for superman you've got moon knight for batman and like these are established characters with fans and the the benefit is they're all pompous asses or entirely crazy can you imagine that team dynamic? that would be the most fun playground like, I don't know, make it, make it a Thunderbolts book or a Dark Avengers book, but I would love to tell, I don't know what the story would be, but I'd love to tell it with that team because I feel like by the end of the first issue, it's just going to be like interpersonal wars on all fronts and it would be incredible. 
So um, one thing that you and I have in common is we both learned uh, some of our skills at the comics experience world. Um, I think you took some of the courses. I don't know if you participated in the workshop, but I know, I know you did some of the courses. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with comics experience. Oh yeah. I am a, a diehard OG comics experience person at this point. I think I've taken six classes. Don't quote me on that, but, uh, it's, it's up there. Um, and I've taken them with Andy and, and Paul and, and Fred. Um, and I've, I've learned a ton. Um, I'm, I, I spent not nearly enough time on the forums anymore. I was super involved for, for a few years um, and I've maintained my membership and I pop in every once in a while to see what's, what's going on and contribute. But, um, and I wish I spent more time because it is a frigging gold mine of, of talent and, and ideas and, and information. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just like, like so many other people, like I wanted to make comics and, and I, I really wasn't sure how to get started. Um, let me preface that by saying like i have i have four degrees one in communications one in, in, in uh, english literature and then i have master's degrees in, in creative writing as a general sort of uh tenant and one in poetry um i also ran my school's newspaper when i was in college for four years uh sort of learning print production and project management what it's like to collaborate and, and, and run a team i mean like i before i got into the real world, I did a lot of work to prepare myself for life making comics because I knew it's what I wanted to do. Um, and then I got out of college and, and graduate school and, and kind of for five years did almost nothing. Uh, a couple false starts, but life happened. It got in the way, started working full time, and suddenly there were a few hour, fewer hours in the day. Um, I met my wife, you know, who's my girlfriend at the time. Uh, we bought a house. We got a dog, you know, friends, barbecues, babies, like every, everyone's got everything on it. Like, and just life kind of got in the way. Um, but uh, comics experience was kind of like my my – Fisher cut bait moment. Like I said, if I don't figure this out this year, like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna move on. Like there's, there's six years is more than enough time to get started. Um, so I signed up for the intro class with Andy. I took that in February of 2016. Um, and, and it was exactly what I needed. Uh, I think having somebody work through the process with you and, you know, run the ropes, so to speak, uh, is incredibly helpful. Um, the class for me in particular helped me take the tools and skills I, I had already that I'd sort of been working on, on purposefully for a long time um, and figure out how to apply them and where to apply them and in what order to apply them. And it, I mean, for me, it was very much about understanding the organization of, of what I had to, to bring to the table, um, but also like, you know, different things like like what it's like to work with an editor and 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 to get feedback and and be gracious and and thoughtful and accepting of critical critiques of your work that aren't meant to be shitty but are meant to be helpful um and also knowing the difference between good feedback and bad feedback so there, i mean there was so much yes benefit. yes uh, yes so much benefit and I, I i think i remember going way back i think i remember you and i both touching on on some of the stuff that we put on the forums for feedback you can correct me if i'm wrong but i i think that we had left each other some feedback back in the day i have lost the ability to remember past the last 15 minutes unfortunately oh, you know, I, 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 I will I, defer to your memory and and believe that I, you're probably I right you. i did for you for the uh the, was it the roads less traveled anthology story or, or the okay okay yeah yeah oh yeah, man i, I appreciate I remember that, doing that um, but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, comic experience was a, a friggin' revelation for me. Like I, I can't really say it any other way. Um, and anyone listening who thinks they want to make comics, look, the classes are not cheap. They're probably priced similarly to a community college class termed, you know, through credit class. Um, but you know, if you do the math, it works out to be like 50 bucks an hour for almost one-on-one -on -one time for two months. Uh, and, and you walk away with professionally edited projects under your belt. I mean, like it's, it worked for me and now I'm a fucking superstar. So like it, yeah. it'll, it'll probably work for you as long as you go in with the mentality that you'll, you'll get out of it what you put into it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I highly recommend it for everyone at any level that they can, they can participate. It's, it's definitely worth it. Uh, no matter what their approach or what their discipline is. Um, 
in in that response, there was one thing you mentioned that that I've actually never heard before. I did not know that you had a uh, background in poetry. I've got to ask: Have you ever read the well wrought urn? I, I must have because I know that name. It's um, poetry is a is a topic that is Eats, largely or- largely yeah. difficult for me, um, but it, it's it's a good overview and analysis. And the person who swears by it is the TV writer David Milch, the guy who did Deadwood. Mm. And he, you know, this is almost like a Bible for him. And he um, he goes on and on about how it's important in his writing. And specifically, there's a section in there about the language of paradox um, and how important that is in all of the scenes that he writes. And I, I was able to absorb the writing lessons from that book, even though I don't quite still understand the poetry entirely. I highly recommend that for anyone out there who's interested in literature and learning how to write and everything. But I just remembered that um, one of the things I liked about Dead End Kids Volume 2, there is a moment where you've got like a, a visual language of paradox moment. Um, and you alluded to it earlier in the discussion Um it's in that meta moment where we're talking about what kind of story volume two is going to be. Mm. And you've got um, an amazing bit of sequential storytelling that gives you a expectation of uh, a gathering in a community, but then yeah. that, but then it subverts your expectations and gives you a moment of isolation. However, and I, I'm just going to speculate here, uh, everybody who's listening, I may be totally wrong here, but I still think that I'm going to feel a, a sense of community with these characters by the time that this story is over. So that moment to me is a kind of a paradoxical moment because literally you're showing a isolation, but I feel a, a connection and a community with them and I'm anticipating it. So... Um, well, I mean, that works really well. There's something to this idea of, of you know, uh, falling out friends, right? Like everyone has somebody who they you know, regret that isn't in their life anymore for one reason or another. And I think that's one of those universal ideas that I was talking about earlier. Like who, yeah. who, in, who in high school continued to only hang out with the people that they grew up with? Like you, 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 you float apart and like, I mean, this is like the, the crux of so many teen movies, honestly, like. You know, it's it's the, the the nerdy girl who grew up and got a little more popular and hangs out with the more popular girls, but is still sympathetic towards the the, the nerdy girl who she used to be friends with, but constantly lets her down. I mean, like that is a cliche at this point, but it's playing into something that both you know that that sort of setup plays into, and, and then why people kind of love those stories. Uh, if I could touch back on on poetry for a little bit, because honestly, like it's not a lot of people would expect it, but. I, the, writing poetry and, and studying poetry um, was probably the, the writing discipline that prepared me most for making comics uh, and, and in like a really unexpected way. Uh, I got my poetry MFA mostly because I wasn't ready to go out into the workforce and I didn't want to, uh, I wanted to stay in school. Uh, so it was kind of like a backdoor way to, to continue not having to work uh, when I was 20, 21 or 22. Uh, and I, so I did an MFA in, in poetry because I like poetry and I like writing. And I figured like, what the hell? It, it's, it's another year and a half where I don't have to worry about the real world. Um, so uh, the program was set up to essentially be independent studies. Um, so for t- two times a year, we would get together uh, all the kids in the program or all the people in the program were adults. Um, and we would do a 10 day long sort of boot camp Um with all of the the poetry professors and independent study leaders. Um, and we would just do 10 days of workshops and lectures and readings and, and all kinds of stuff and, and meet with our semester mentor every semester we got a new mentor um, and kind of build like a, a curriculum for what the rest of the semester would look like, what we would do and report back to them and stuff like that. And it was, it was pretty cool. Um, but working with a, a solo teacher like that was cool because it kind of prepped me for working with editors and taking feedback. Um, but the thing that 
even more prepared me for comics or at least my way of writing comics like how i write comics uh, is with with poetry it's like it's con you're constantly taking a, a line of, of of poetry and, and turning it around and, and revising it and and finding the best version of itself and that's something that, like i'm really addicted to in my writing is like i'll write a garbage draft like we were talking about earlier just get it out in eight days and then i'll spend a month or two really kind of turning each scene around and finding the best version of it and, and a line of dialogue. Like I am notoriously thorough uh, at the, the lettering stage uh, before I send my letters off to Sean, like I'll take a look at the, the colored art with the script and make sure that like every word counts and that like nothing is redundant or, or, it, you know, make sure that nothing is being said that the art's already saying and, and like that constant revision and turning around. Like for me, revision is like, uh, like it's something that doesn't stop happening until I can't do it anymore. Um, and that's like very much born of, you know, turning poetry lines around and moving stanzas around and stuff like that. And, um, and, and I always think that's pretty cool because everyone kind of side eyes poetry as this frou-frou thing but you know some of the most badass people i know are poets and it's helped me a tremendous amount so if you don't like poetry get bent <laughs> I, I i do think it comes through especially in the in the captions in dead and kids there's there's a bit of a poetic quality to them um so um that i did not know that about you but now retroactively that that's not shocking um <laughs> We're running a little short on time here, but before we head it out, I, I did want to check in with you. You're a man of many projects. Um, we're, I think, between issues two and three on No Heroin. Uh, by the time this podcast is out, maybe issue three might be out. When is issue three coming out? Uh, in theory, it's out uh, a week from tomorrow. It's Wednesday. Yeah, so uh, uh, September 30th is the street date. Um, with the, the delays and, and coronavirus and everything going on in the world, like a week or so delay is, is kind of like expected and, and who knows, but it'll be out sometime in the next month, next four weeks for sure. Um, and you know, it's kind of something you just kind of grin bear with it and, and roll, you know, it's kind of, it is what it is. Give us real quick what the pitch is for that, uh, story. And is that, is that one also a three issue one or is that a four issue one? Uh, no heroin is a three issue miniseries. Uh, the issues are a little bit oversized compared to some of my other books. Uh, so there's a little more meat on them, a little more bang for your buck. Uh, but, um, it's, uh, it's my sort of love letter to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which surprisingly has not come up yet in this conversation. That's how self-controlled I am. Um, but Buffy was my first storytelling love. I'm a big Joss Whedon fan in spite of his shortcomings as a human. Um, and I and I grew up with a very deep appreciation for Buffy you know, when I started watching it when I was nine years old, way too young. Um, but uh, I always wanted to tell a Buffy story, and very few people get the right Buffy comics. That's just uh, the way IPs and, and sort of that kind of stuff works. So I wanted to tell my own Buffy story, but kind of like find the right story for me to tell. Um, and so I, I kind of – well, the pitch is uh, No Heroin is uh, – about a young woman named Kayla who's a recovering drug addict uh, and she's sort of on her road to redemption, trying to right the wrongs uh, that she did to her family and friends when she was a uh, junkie. Uh, but uh, she kind of falls into a, a life of monster slaying and, and starts to realize that, you know, being clean and, and, and doing the right thing is, is just the first step and it doesn't kind of erase everything that's happened or, or will happen. Um, the other thing is she's kind of an asshole and, and her own worst enemy. And she's constantly making her, her existence harder and, and working against herself. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so yeah, that's a three issue mini. It's going to wrap up soon. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I honestly, I'd say I'd like that, that story a lot better than dead and kids for anyone who read dead and kids and, and might be on the fence about checking that out. Definitely check out no heroin. It's, it's, it may go down being the best thing I ever wrote. Well, it's uh, it's off to a fantastic start with the first two issues, and I'm looking forward to the the third one. That's for sure. I um, I admire the the the, the world building, especially in the first issue. Um, I I as someone who like you reads a lot of comics. I get I get mired down in world um, in comics that are overly world built yeah. um, and um, explicitly 
um, you know, here are the rules of my world and here are the levels and here is X, Y, Z, you know, um, to exhaustive detail. Um, and one of the best things about no heroin is it's almost like you say, fuck it. And just, you're just like, it's almost like to me, um, the, the world building on no heroin almost feels like uh, a musical in that you, you're started out in a grounded world. And then the moment when that grounded world becomes more of a genre world, it's so effortless and instantaneous. It's almost like everybody just started to break into genre song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what, that you can actually, uh, I can, I can attribute that kind of storytelling directly to Paul Aller, who I took classes with at comics experience and who is just an incredible creator on his own. He's doing a really awesome job on, on GI Joe over IDW right now, but Paul kind of ex- explained world building to me. And, and this is, this makes sense to me because I hate world building. Like I just, I don't have time for it. It's not something I'm particularly interested in. Um, cause I, cause my focus is character. Um, but uh, he said to me, like, imagine, imagine the set of like a spaghetti western. You've got, you know, the good guy on one end of, of the the, sh- the drag and the bad guy on the other end of the drag, and it's about to be high noon, and they're going to duel. And then lining the the street on either side of them, you got the saloon and the whorehouse and the sheriff's office and the bank and whatnot. And they and then the director calls cut, and then everyone kind of breaks character and you walk around past the buildings and you look behind them and it's just boards propped up on, on, you know, stilts. Um, and that to me is set dressing. It's like the bare minimum you need to tell the story and, and sell the idea is, is what I want to put into it. Um, because I think, like I was saying earlier, like readers aren't stupid. Like they can fill in the blanks on their own. And honestly, Sometimes when you leave things to the imagination, like people can fill it in with better stuff than you ever would have came up with. I always think about horror movies and like one of the most effective techniques in horror movies is cutting away from something before it starts. They just have the, the, the mad scientist hovering over the, the damsel in distress with, with a drill and like a crazy look on his face and then cut away. Like you are going to put way gorier stuff happening in that scene than any, than Robert Rodriguez would have put on the screen. Like, and, and I think that there's a lot of value in, in minimal world building because let, let people's imaginations run wild. Like it's fine. Um, all you need to know about no heroin is that there, there are monsters and society knows about them and they're kind of on the fringe in sort of these sort of, uh, subcultures, right? Like, yeah, the vampires are drug dealers and, and that's all you need to know about it. Like, it doesn't matter. Like the, the mechanics of, can they go out in the sun? Can they, you know, are they allergic to garlic? That stuff will get established as it needs to, if it needs to. Well, those are fantastic lessons from Paul. Um, and I'm glad that you, uh, you expended the, uh, the $50 per hour and uh, distilled it down to me for free here. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, um, that, I mean, that was just one nugget from Paul. But. <laughs> so uh, before we go, the, there's a standard question I ask everyone uh, what's on your radar? What, what are you reading? What are you watching that, that you can recommend? What am I reading? What am I watching that I can recommend? Um, I'll expand that to uh, playing as well. Uh, I, I made an effort this year to play more video games and it's been way more successful than I ever could have imagined. Um, right now I am playing um, the third of the new trilogy of Tomb Raider games. So this game came out about two years ago. It's called Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Really great adventure game. Um, really finally sets into the mold of the original but has it's, it's like earned it and built like a really great world i mean the whole trilogy is really good but this one feels like a true tomb raider game and i love it um what am i watching right now uh right now uh and for the last two years i've been working my way through a rewatch of all of the seasons of power rangers which there are 27 of um so oh it's my taken, goodness <laughs> yeah and there are about 40 or 50 episodes each um give or take so uh, I just last night finished the second to last season that I have, uh, which was Power Rangers Ninja Steel, which is the second most current series. Uh, I skipped one along the way to watch with my wife because she was interested in checking it out. Um, but uh, I mean, Power Rangers is always excellent. That's another thing I'm surprised hasn't come up in this interview. Um, it's something I swear by. Uh, what am I reading? I mentioned Firepower from Kirkman Insomni. Really, really excellent. Uh, I'm, I've been reading uh, Catching Up on Ice Cream Man from... Uh, Prince and uh, I can't remember the artist's names. I apologize to him, but Ice Cream Man's just wonderful. 
Oh, God, I, I can throw stuff out there all day. I consume so much media. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. A game, a, a comic, and, and a TV show. Awesome. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, Frank, thanks so much for coming onto the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm, I was, like I said, happy to be here. And, and I always like to say, you know, thanks back. And, and honestly, like I should be the one thanking you anyway. Um, you, you're going to put a lot of time into this. This is an hour out of your day. This is you spending your, what is it? Tuesday, Tuesday night recording and you're going to edit and you're going to upload and you're going to promote and, and you're going to do all this work. And I just had to sit here and talk for a while. Um, so I appreciate your time and you giving me your, your platform and, and, and room to speak about the, the things that are important to me and giving me a voice. So thank you. All right, man. Thank you so much.